Thank you. Welcome to this informal meeting for members of 12-step fellowships who are interested in recovery through the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Alastair and I'm an alcoholic. To set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract from the preface of the big book. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and help, has helped such large number of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists strong sentiments against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume, describing the AA recovery program, has been left largely untouched in the course of revisions made for the second, third and fourth editions. The section called the doctor's opinion has been kept intact, just as it was originally written in 1939 by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, our society's great medical benefactor. At tonight's workshop, we will start halfway, uh, not halfway down, three quarters of the way down page 38 with the paragraph beginning appropriately, some of you are thinking. And Tim will work through the text paragraph by paragraph, pausing for questions. If you have a question, please use the raised hand function in Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. We will try to close around the hour mark. And with that, I will hand over to Tim. Hello everyone, Tim Arcolic. Can you hear me all right, Alistair? Good, okay. Give me a second, get all the pictures up. Um, where are we? Some of you are thinking, yes, what you tell us is true, but it doesn't fully apply. We admit we have some of these symptoms, but we have not gone to the extremes you fellows did, nor are we likely to. For we understand ourselves so well after what you've told us that such things can ha cannot happen again. We have not lost everything in life through drinking, and we certainly do not intend to. Thanks for the information. Well, it's so polite, aren't they, these people? So polite. Thanks for the information. Uh, if you've sponsored people, you've had this conversation. Uh, it's very interesting when people talk about... Um, well, first of all, you've got lots of different objections. So the first one is we haven't gone to the extremes. And the fallacy there, the misunderstanding about alcoholism is that... Uh, you could let it get worse uh, and then deal with it. Uh, and it's actually turned into one of those little AA sayings. They say it's like a sort of uh, downward lift or elevator. You can get off at any story you like. Of course, you can't. If you could, then there wouldn't, you, you could calibrate the suffering against the benefit and, and duck out just at the right time. The, but it's not like playing 21 or, or something like that where there's a calculated risk. It's like playing 21 and you've got to, uh, you know, uh, you, you've got a couple of cards and you're up to nine and you think, right, I've got 12 in hand, I'm fine. Then the next card that goes down is 47. You didn't know there was a 47 in the pack and you bust. And alcoholism is like that. You, I, I, I as I said earlier, if I stopped at a certain point in 1990. And I started again a few months later. And then it was nine months before I stopped again. And then I stopped for a few months and then.
but the, the the lift doesn't stop at every floor and you don't know how many floors it's going to go down before it stops again does that make sense um so the fact that one is only a little bit of the way along is neither here nor there because you're in a window of opportunity right now if you don't grab it now you don't know when the next window of opportunity is going to be uh, also it's the same and this is and funnily enough this principle is well understood both with pregnancy and with cancer that people are very people are intuitively very clear that the fact that the pregnancy is only a, a little way in does not mean it's not going to progress to full term similarly with cancer people say well it probably won't spread everyone panics um so and that's what gives the lie to it being a rational objection because uh, it's not it's coming from I think it's coming from somewhere else also there's this idea we understand ourselves so well and I've mentioned this before but I think it's worth mentioning again partly because there are different people here tonight to some extent and partly because it's so important so I mean I, I've said this and I've heard other people say it you know I'm all over the place I haven't done my step work I can't remember my sponsor's first name. I'm being beastly to everyone, but I know where a drink would take me, so I'm not going to drink tonight. What this is, what this book is saying is, it's irrelevant if you know. Knowing doesn't help. <laughs> that should be the watermark on every page. Knowing does not help. Now, you need to know. So it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. And that's a very, I think it's a very useful principle, the idea of things being necessary, but not, not sufficient. So when we say we're beyond human health, it doesn't mean that human health isn't instrumental in the recovery process. It's that it isn't enough. There's something else which is necessary beyond your little friend patting your damp little hand and saying, they're there, everything's going to be all right. That's not enough to keep the panic attacks from hitting you at four o'clock in the morning. Um, we have not lost everything in life through drinking. We certainly do not intend to, thanks for the information. That may be true of certain non-alcoholic people who, though drinking foolishly and heavily at the present time, are able to stop or moderate because their brains and bodies have not been damaged as ours were. But the actual or potential alcoholic, and this is, this is important, people often harp on this potential alcoholic business. Here it's saying that the, the point that's going to follow applies to both the actual and the potential. So if you're a potential alcoholic, you're no further ahead. You don't get a free pass. You're in exactly the same position as the actual, which is this, with hardly an exception. Um, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. This is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize to smash home upon our alcoholic readers and their alanonic spouses, you know who you are, as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. Uh, let us take another illustration, Fred. Now, I, I'm not, as I say, said on earlier weeks, I'm not a big book historian. This was a chap. This was an actual person whose story was in the first edition of the big book. And it's a it's the shortest story in the first edition of the big book. And it's rather it's rather a good one. Um, he's someone you'd like in your home group. And when he put his hand up to share, he'd probably only share for 30 seconds and then you'd be done on to the next person. 
Um, Freddie's partner in a well-known accounting firm. And, and just be before we get into this, um, uh, as I said last week, and I think it's worth reiterating because the, the context is important. Um, they're giving illustrations with Jim and Fred of alcoholics. Now, Jim and Fred do not resemble, well, they resemble very few alcoholics I've ever met in their first three months of AA. They certainly resemble me, not one bit. So the point is to indicate that all of those other confounding factors, the neuroticism, the incompetence, the wild behavior, the antisocial behavior, the mental illness, all those other things which usually accompany, you know, being new in AA, do not apply with these two. Therefore, those are not reasons for their alcoholism or indeed their relapse. So it's stripping out every other possible explanation for their alcoholism other than the fact they are alcoholic. <laughs> Why are they drinking again? Because they're alcoholic. There we go. That's the message of this. Sorry to sort of give you a spoiler there in case you were hoping to build up some sort of suspense with this story. But that's I think that's the punchline. He's drinking because he's an alcoholic and he's untreated. Fred is partner in a well-known accounting firm. His income is good. He has a fine home, is happily married and the father of promising children of college age. He has so attractive a personality that he makes friends with everyone. If ever there was a successful businessman, it is Fred. To all appearance, which may be relevant, to all appearance, he is a stable, well-balanced individual. Yet he is alcoholic. We first saw Fred about a year ago in a hospital where he'd gone to recover from a bad case of jitters. It was his first experience of this kind and he was much ashamed of it. Far from admitting he was an alcoholic, he told himself he came to the hospital to rest his nerves. The doctor intimated strongly that he might be worse than he realized. Uh, for a few days, he was depressed about his condition. He made up his mind to quit drinking altogether. So this is someone that understands his position, has reasoned he must stop. It never occurred to, him, occurred to him that perhaps he could not do so in spite of his character and standing. Fred would not believe himself an alcoholic, much less accept a spiritual remedy for his problem. We told him what we knew about alcoholism. Uh, he was interested and conceded that he had some of the symptoms that he was a long way from admitting that he could do nothing about it himself. He was positive that, his hum that this humiliating experience, plus the knowledge he had acquired, would keep him sober the rest of his life. Self-knowledge would fix it. And unfortunately, I think one hears this in AA. Uh, I don't know if you have ever, ever heard this. I come to meetings to remind myself of what it was like to keep to remember my last drunk, that's the line from Living Sober, and to keep the memory evergreen. Now, the principle there, which appears to be operative, is if I keep at the top of my mind what drink did to me, as well as what drink did for me, then that will keep me sober. Now, that may be necessary to stay sober, but it's not sufficient. And that's the fallacy that runs through uh, AA meetings sometimes. We heard no more... Uh, yes, we heard no more of Fred for a while. One day we were told that he was back in the hospital. This time he was quite shaky. 
He soon indicated he was anxious to see us. The story he told us is most instructive, for here was a chap absolutely convinced that he had to stop drinking, who had no excuse for drinking, who exhibited splendid judgment and determination in all his other, other concerns, yet was flat on his back nonetheless. Let him tell you about it. I was much impressed with what you fellows said about alcoholism, and I frankly did not believe it would be possible for me to drink again. Have you heard people say I don't have another drink in me? That's nice. How do you know? How do you, how would a person know? Um, I think the fact that, that, that I go to AA, I've been, if you don't know me, I've been, been going to AA for ooh, 29 years now. And I've been sober for all but the last, all but the first, all but the last, all but the first six months of that. Um, uh, I still go because I've got another drink in me, because I absolutely am capable. I don't know if any of you had any strange thoughts in the last year or so. I have, not necessarily about alcohol. Have you ever, have you acted on any of those strange thoughts in the last year? Have you ever done anything? And as you're doing it, you think, I shouldn't be doing this, or I shouldn't be saying that or I should just close the fridge door, or whatever it is. You know, I, I still act irrationally. So I have another drink in me. Um, I reasoned, I reasoned, I was not so far advanced as most of you fellows that I've been usually successful in licking my other personal problems, and that I would therefore be successful where you men failed. I felt I had every right to be self-confident that it would be only a matter of exercising my willpower and keeping on guard. In this frame of mind, I went about my business. And now, now this is probably not intentional, but isn't that interesting? I went about my business, not going about AA's business, not going about God's business, not going about the higher powers business. He went about his business. Um, and for a time, all was well. And that echoes the line in Jim's story for a while, uh, uh, all went well. So how well I'm doing externally and internally is not a predictor of whether or not I'm going to have a drink. And the, the inverse is true. If I'm doing badly on the outside and doing badly on the inside, that doesn't mean I'm going to have a drink. There's something, there's a different factor which predicts for whether or not people recover. I had no trouble refusing drinks, and I began to wonder if I had not been making too hard work of a simple matter. One day I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence, subtle brag there. I went to Washington to present some accounting evidence to a government bureau. I'd been out of town before during this particular dry spell, so there was nothing new about that. Physically, I felt fine. Neither did I have any pressing problems or worries. My business came off well. I was pleased and knew my partners would be too. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. So he's fine externally, he's fine internally. You're up to speed, good. What's gonna happen next? Um, I went to my hotel and, and leisurely dressed for dinner. I always feel there should be an extra LY in somehow. Uh, and leisurely dressed for dinner. 
as I crossed the threshold of the dining room, the thought came to mind. Now, that's interesting. People give themselves away, as I know Claire will agree with this, people give themselves away with their language. It's not what you're trying to say, it's the things you accidentally say when you're saying the things you're trying to say, which are most revelatory in here. The thought came to mind. Someone said to me once, have you noticed you don't go, you don't have, you don't think thoughts on purpose. They happen to you. Or certainly a lot of thoughts happen to you. You can have active thinking processes, but even then you're sort of commanding the little army of thinking bots inside your brain. You're not producing the thoughts, you're the recipient of them. The thought comes to you. You don't go and get it. You don't say, hey, I'd like to have a thought now. Come at me. Now it comes to you. The thought came to mind. Now, what's Fred's thought? That it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. Now, I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, you know, the disease of alcoholism, it lies. Alcohol is a liar. <laughs> and alcoholism also tells the truth. And this is why it's so tricky. If alcoholism merely lied, you could just keep your eye out, keep your little beady eye out for lies. But this, now let's see um, if this is a true thought or a false one. It would be nice to have a cocktail, couple of cocktails with dinner. Um, that was all, nothing more. So he had no further thoughts. I ordered a cocktail and my meal. Cocktail number one. Then I ordered another cocktail. Cocktail number two. That's two cocktails. That's a couple of cocktails. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. So this assertion, it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. Not only is it accurate in that it's nice, but it's also accurate. That is the precise number he had with dinner. The disease is not lying to him here. It's telling him the truth. But it's missing something out, which is what's going to happen afterwards. So with Jim, the, the reason it's so interesting, Jim is the person to whom, the al to whom alcoholism lies and says, whiskey in the milk, good idea. Fred is the person to whom alcoholism tells the truth, but not the whole truth. And so this means if you're left alone with your alcoholic mind, you're scuppered because it could lead you to a drink via a lie or it could lead you to a drink via the truth. And you can't go through life avoiding both lies and the truth and thinking nothing. You've got to have something to go on. And I think if you put these together, it's the best sort of technical proof, as it were, of why one needs something more than one's own mind to rely on. It's, it's what Bill talks about in Bill's story, that, that troublesome line when he says, where common sense becomes uncommon sense. I've got to have something more than common sense. I've, Fred, you see, Fred's problem is he's relying on himself. He is trusting his own thinking implicitly, and that is the fatal flaw. And the answer, therefore, is for me not to to trust my own thinking implicitly, to trust the four Ps of the program, the principles, the higher power and the people. 
Um, and that, that is the higher authority to which I appeal when my own mind wants to give me instructions. So that's, I think this is the basis of the whole answer. After dinner, I decided to take a walk. When I returned to the hotel, it struck me before the thought came to mind. This one strikes him. <laughs> so the thinking is obviously geeing up here. It struck me a highball would be fine before going to bed. So I stepped into the bar and had one. I remember having several more that night and plenty next morning. I have a shadowy recollection of being in an airplane van for New York and of finding a friendly taxi cab driver at the landing field instead of my wife. The driver escorted me about for several days. I know little of where I went or what I said and did. Then came the hospital with unbearable mental and physical suffering. As soon as I regained my ability to think, now that's, I've always found that line interesting. That means there was a point at which he lost his ability to think. You, you can't regain it unless you've lost it. What is the point at which he lost his ability to think? I think it's here. The thought came to mind that it would be nice to have a couple of cocktails with dinner. That was all, nothing more. That is the point at which the thinking in a healthy person would have kicked in and said, ah, yeah, but Fred. You won't stop it too, will you? So the point at which he lost the ability to think uh, was before, uh, he was still thinking, unfortunately, whilst he'd lost the ability to think. The thinking is still continuing, even though he's gone mad at that point. I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I'd made no fight whatsoever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. Um, by the way, if you want, if, if, if ever you get into an argument with someone about what Bill meant in step one with the dash. Here's another good example of uh, the way Bill uses the dash. What comes after the dash is entailed by what comes before is somehow equivalent to it. The time and place would come. What do you mean by that? I would drink again. These are not two separate thoughts. These are fundamentally connected thoughts like two parts of step one. Anyway, technical point. They said, they had said that though I did raise a defence, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. Well, just that did happen and more. For what I'd learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help me in those strange mental blank spots. So Jim, peculiar mental twist, distortion of reality, the disease lying. Strange mental blank spot. Fred, the disease telling the truth, but not the whole truth. There is a blank spot where the rest of the truth should be, but Fred, you're not going to stop at two cocktails. I now, what's also interesting, it doesn't say willpower and self-knowledge don't help at all. They do help as long as you don't happen to be having a strange mental blank spot. That's why it's so tricky. The periods when 
self willpower and self knowledge work trick you into thinking you yeah, got this now and i've had this with other since i've been sober i've been tied up on occasion with some other addictive patterns um behavioral ones and it's exactly the the, the pattern is exactly the same you go through a period where you're not acting out because you your willpower and self knowledge is fine until you hit a strange mental blank spot exactly the same thing i'd never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated i knew then it was a crushing blow two of the members of alcoholics anonymous came to see me they grinned which i didn't like so much then they asked me if i thought myself alcoholic and if I were really licked this time, they kind of don't mince words. They're going straight in with this. And that was very much their approach in early AA. They'd tour the hospitals. They'd say, hello, are you alcoholic? Yes. Are you really licked this time? What? And they go on to the next, the, the next bed. They, they did not mess around. They a brief explanation, boom, on to the next one. I had to concede both propositions. They piled on me heaps of evidence to the effect that an alcoholic mentality such as I had exhibited in Washington was a hopeless condition. They cited cases out of their own experience by the dozen. This process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. They outlined the spiritual answer, reliance on a higher power, and program of action, steps four through twelve which a hundred of them had followed successfully. Though I had been only a nominal churchman, their proposals were not intellectually hard to swallow, but the programme of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Um, I, as a thing who's in this room, I mean, it's on a tape, so I should be careful anyway. So at some point in the long distant past, in a galaxy far, far away, I sponsored someone that thought the program was very, very drastic. And I, and initially I said, well, don't do it then. I, I'm not going to, if you're not enthusiastic, <laughs> let's let it go. But they remonstrated with me and said, no, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I relented and we, we, we had a go at doing the program. And it, it didn't work out in the end. Um, my experience is that I started to get well when how drastic it was, was no longer a factor for me. When I didn't care how drastic it was, well expressed in middle of the road AA, an ordinary bog standard, you know, or round the corner meetings where people say, if said to me when I got to AA, you've got to run up and down Oxford Street naked, I would have done it. That's the attitude. That absolutely, well, you don't care if it's drastic. You're, I'll do anything. Whilst it still seems drastic, just, you know, go and go and do whatever. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong conceptions out of the window. That was not easy. I think this echoes the line on page 58, which we obviously haven't got to. 
uh, we had to let go of our old ideas entirely. The result was let was was nil until we let go absolutely. And um, um, I don't know if you've ever played. There's a game that you can play with sponsors. It's ever so much fun. This where they call you up and they say, "I've got a problem," and they explain the problem and you give them the solution. And the game is called "But What About." Have you ever played "But What About" with a sponsor? They say. But what about my other parts of my life? But what about my old sponsor who says it? But what about my therapist that says this? But what about, there's always a but what about? And it's because the old ideas are still there. And you're trying to squeeze in a new idea. And the new idea is fighting with the old ideas. And then it just ejects the old, it just, the, the, the new idea just gets ejected and hits you in the face. And then it's your fault. <laughs> But suggesting the new idea. The ideal with sponsors is if, if, you, if you give them a new idea and you don't hear it hit the bottom, then it's probably gone in. If you can hear it hitting the bottom of the well, uh, duck, because it's probably on its way back up again. Uh, so, um, and also now, people might legitimately object on two grounds the first ground they might object why should i let go of conceptions which are demonstrably true and this is why this is safe to do so if it is true the process we will yield those truths back up to you on a silver platter anyway so anything which is true by temporarily setting everything aside you're not going to lose the things which are true they will come back to you so there is no risk Secondly, I don't know if anyone's read any Descartes or read about Descartes, but he was a he was he was your he was your cogito ergo sum chappy from France, um, uh, who, who one of whose ideas was that the very fact that the, the, the thing that you can know above all else is uh, the, 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 the fact that you're having the thought proves that there is something there. Um, uh, I, I think, therefore, I am. Anyway, um, Descartes, one of his approaches when he was questioning everything, he questioned everything. He questioned what was real in the world. He questioned the relationship between the external world and one's internal experience. And it's very destabilizing. And the program is very destabilizing. But what he said, I, he said, I'm going to do a few things whilst I'm engaging these philosophical investigations. I'm going to, and I'm being a bit silly here, I'm going to make my bed in the morning. I'm going to have my usual breakfast. I'm going to go to bed at an ordinary time. I'm going to feed the cats. I'm going to believe in God. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to keep some of the basic things going. And AA does not ask anyone to throw out any of those ordinary daily routines. In fact, a good sponsor will usually suggest those daily routines as part of someone's program. So there's no risk in throwing everything, uh, uh, throwing out these or setting aside these lifelong conceptions because it doesn't go to the basics of life. Those must be continued. And any higher uh, matters, truths will come back sometimes repackaged and reformulated and reframed but they will come back um uh, and here there's another there's another problem as well with uh so on all where is it um page 23 it says the problem centers in the person's mind 
So if you've got a mind like mine, where half of the mind is full of truth and the other half of the mind is false, the very fact that I can sit there with some truths and some falsehoods means that a couple of other things are true. First of all, the falsehoods seem true. So from my point of view, lies look as true as truths. If they didn't, the lies wouldn't be there. They would have been thrown out. Do you follow what I mean? Like that if you believe things which are untrue, you, you have lost the faculty of discerning the true from the false. It talks about it in the doctor's opinion. So the bit of me whose job it is to sift true from false is broken. And this is the core problem. This is why when my, you know, when sponsors over the years have suggested things, if I argue with them, I'm arguing using the bit of the brain that I've already admitted cannot tell the truth from the false. I'm activating the mechanism which is responsible for the problem in the first place. So that's why it's setting everything aside is very important. And, and the other thing as well, the other thing which makes this safe, um, there's, there's, uh, so as we know, um, William James was very important in informing the uh, uh, early AA members in terms of his, his writing. Now, William James comes out of a tradition of American philosophy, or certainly connected with the so-called pragmatists. And there are, in philosophy, there are three, I, th I think I'm right in saying there are three broad uh, uh, definitions of, of truth. The first definition of truth is that which, an idea which conforms to reality. The second definition of truth is that which experts uh, examining meticulously the facts over and over and again, what they ultimately converge on. So, you know, there are, uh, you can always find crackpots that believe extreme things, but the majority consensus of scientific opinion on something um, uh, tends to be true. But the third one was one the pragmatists came up with. And what they said was, this is in very, very crude form. What they said was, what is true is determined by what works. If it works, it's true enough for us. And I think that's the AA philosophy, where um, and Joe, uh, Mark Houston and Joe Hawke are very good on this. Um, so, so Joe Hawke would talk about when someone would argue with him and he'd say, yeah, but how's that working out for you? What results are you getting from the attitudes and thinking and behavior that characterize your life? How, how's that working out for you? And in We Agnostics, the next chapter, it's going to do the same thing. It's, it says, let's look at the record. Who's doing better, me or you? <laughs> there we go. Who's doing better? So the test you can always give sponsees, try these ideas out, test drive them. And if they work, come back for more. And if they don't work, go and ask someone else. It's fine. So we don't need to figure out theoretically what is true and false. We need to test out the, the uh, ideas, see if when applied, they function, if they function, they're good enough for us. They're, 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 um, even if they're fictions, if they work, they work. 
Uh, and that's not, by the way, an unreasonable scientific approach. In uh, if, if you read uh, any theoretical uh, physicists, there's an uh, uh, American theoretical physicist called Linda, L-I-N-D-E, who is a Russian originally, I think he teaches at Berkeley, who says that all of our theories in, in physics, and none of them are provable, but they're the best ex explanations we can find for the evidence that we observe in the laboratory. So the success, that the truth of those ideas in theoretical physics is determined by their ability. Do they work? What does work mean? Do they allow us to successfully predict observations in the laboratory? If they do, it's good enough for us. You can't prove it directly. And I think AA's ideas are the same. You cannot prove them directly. What you can do is demonstrate through your own experience that they worked for you and worked for other people. Um, which means you can get out of the debating society with sponsees and just get into the action game. And then, then you're motoring. Uh, and just one, one image with, and this I think is helpful with sponsees. Sometimes people are very frightened of the program. And it's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever seen a Paternoster lift, which is a lift or an elevator, which is constantly in motion with no doors on each floor. You just have to jump on the moving, uh, into the moving compartment and then it goes up a floor and up a floor and then it goes down the other side. And I think AA is like that. It's very alarming to look at. All you have to do is execute one small leap onto, into the first compartment and then it will, it will take you to the next one. So get into action first, join us in the action and then we can talk about the theory afterwards. I don't know if that makes any sense as an image, but um, uh, there we go. But the, now this is terribly important as well. I think this is a very good bit of the chapter. But the moment I, I made up my mind to go through with the process, I had the curious feeling that my alcoholic condition was relieved as in fact it proved to be. So there's a, there's a, a, a very legitimate question people ask, which is if the spiritual awakening in step 12 is where the solution to alcoholism lies, how do people manage to stay sober whilst they're doing the first 11 steps? And I think the answer is in here, that it is the commitment to the program as demonstrated by subsequent action. It is the commitment, which is actually the thing which turns the key in the lock and releases you from alcoholic insanity. Um, so at the point at which he commits, he's now, relieved and Harry M. Tebout talks about this, about the difference between compliance and surrender. Someone who's merely complying with the program is perfunctorily going through the motions, but there is a tension there. Um, they don't wanna be doing it. Whereas in surrender, the whole person relaxes, their, their body changes, their body language changes because they've ceased fighting, they've, they've, they've made up their mind to go through with the process. They're no longer testing it, they're in it. They've jumped onto the Paternoster lift. Um, also it means the converse is also useful. Uh, so when someone slips, I mean that you can't, it's very difficult to, to, to express a generality about such a diverse range of experiences with slipping, but 
I think a good general rule of thumb is that there is a fundamental, there's a fundamental non, non-surrender there most of the time. There are some exceptions, but there's a fundamental non-surrender to the program. And what surrender I think helpfully can be described as is this. I'm going to go through with this regardless of what I think or feel during the course of the process. So I think it's well to warn sponsees, you're going to have days when you think the whole lot is a crock of whatever, when you disbelieve everything, when you think I'm never going to get through this. Um, Tom W's friend Jim talks about how when he was new, there were days when the day was so disastrous, he declared it over at 7pm and just went to bed and had another go the next day. There are going to be days when it's just dreadful. But, but if you've committed, you know you're, you're, you just have to stomach those and get through to the other side. And it's a, I t- I t- there's, there's, Greek mythology is very useful <clears throat> as a source of imagery. So when, or oh, I think it's Odysseus, if Evans here, he'll tell me if I'm wrong. Um, uh, so he's going to be sailing his ship uh, through these straits. And uh, positioned, I think, on the cliffs above are the sirens who sing this incredibly beautiful music. Except it, it, it drives the mariners crazy. And they, they, I think, I don't know if they jump in the sea and drown themselves or something. But anyway, they die. If they listen to the siren song, they die. And what Odysseus does is he gets, uh, he, uh, he gets them to tie him to the mast and then fill their own ears with wax so that the mariners on the vessel can't hear the sirens, but he's tied to the mast, even though he can hear the sirens, because he wants to hear what the siren song is, but be unable to do anything um, about it. So he won't pose a danger to himself or others. So they tie him to the mast. And the reason, and then he survives, of course. Now, I think... um, seeing if Evans corrected me yet. No, that well, that's probably accurate. In that case, if he hasn't got the keyboard in time. Um, <laughs> uh, now, the point is, uh, uh, I think it's true, it was true for me, and I think it's true for other people as, as well, that the sirens are going to sing. There are going to be times when alcoholism or whatever other ism Alanonism or botulism or whatever else you've got, whatever other ism is afflicting you, is going to call to you. And you've got to make sure that you are tied to the mast um, and or have wax in your ears. What's tied to being tied to the mast mean? I think it means so being so committed to a rigorous daily program, which so sews up your time, you haven't really got any room to move. That's what I did in my first year. I was so used to going to my meeting every day, it didn't occur to me not to. Um, And for the first couple of years, and on many occasions since then, I make sure that wherever I go on whatever device I have, I mean, it was a tape player when I got sober, I had AA tapes with me so I could put a favourite AA speaker on to listen to wherever I was, whatever I was doing. Maureen, when she was in the car with her alcoholic husband and he started going off on them, she just used to put her headphones on and listen to her Al-Anon speakers. 
And he'd say, why aren't you listening to me? So I'm listening to my Al-Anon speakers. <laughs> that shut him up. So you, you can, a combination of both, I think, doesn't, doesn't do any harm. Sometimes you cannot shut off your head. You can block it, block it out by listening to something else. And the rigorous program of daily action for most people is sufficient to keep them uh, sober, even though they're mad. And I have, I mean, I have, you know, my moments. I really do. I had a couple today. Um, quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Now, there's a statement, isn't it? Spiritual principles would solve all my problems. Um, I think it's true. I mean, on the margins, it's true that if I'm spiritually fit, I'll know which external service provider to go to to help solve a problem. But it's a sort of plumber or psychiatrist. It doesn't really matter. Uh, that's certainly true. Uh, uh, but that's not the core of it. Um, when this was written, they only had the steps only, but they only had the steps. They didn't have the tradition. They didn't have the concepts. Uh, I think it's pretty true to say I haven't found a problem in my life that hasn't yielded to the steps in terms of getting my internal condition right, the traditions in terms of establishing where the boundary is between me and other people, where do I stop, where do they begin? And there are a few other things in the traditions which are helpful as well, but chiefly they're about boundaries. And then the concepts, if you want to play nicely with other people and get stuff done without anyone having to be pushed down the stairs, then the concepts, that's where you go. And a friend of mine, who shall remain nameless, uh, works for a, a big American bank. Um, I can't say which, but it rhymes with Bells Wargo. And oh, they've got a few problems going on there, apparently. Maybe it's that bank, maybe it's another one. Anyway, what's the point? The point is, we'll talk about some complex situations uh, this person has. And what's going wrong inside the bank? And every single time, if you run it through the paradigm of the 12 concepts, you see immediately what is going wrong and where and how. It's, a me it's, a, it's like this amazing diagnostic tool for the most complex and knotty of, knotty of situations. I sponsored people to be a bit more careful about this one. Um, um, uh, so I've, I sponsored even various fellowships, and one of them, it's a fellowship in a country in Europe, I'm not going to say more than that, where they have an absolute um, barnstorming, barney, um, uh, the whole country got involved, and it was about giving phone numbers to newcomers at treatment centres or something like that, and it from group level all the way up, so it wasn't AA, it was one of the other fellowships. It from, from group level all the way up to conference and the subcommittees, the whole thing was just a catastrophe. With one of the subcommittees to national level issuing edicts to groups about what they could or couldn't do if they were sending members to go and do service at treatment centers. Um, and no one knew what to do. And it, interesting, that fellowship is, was very, very weak on the concepts. I think they'd heard of them, but they weren't schooled in them. They weren't, they weren't 
routinely applied. But it was the diagnosis of what was going wrong in that situation was very, very clear and very, very simple. Uh, but unless you know to look for it, unless you know how to apply the concepts as a set of tools to a situation, it just looks like a huge argument, which everyone is getting involved in. I don't know what happened in the end, but um, um, I, I think someone mentioned the concepts and there was a vote of no confidence in them. So that was the end of them. Um, but I think it, it's, it's by, yes, I think it is true that spiritual principles will solve all my problems. And, um, uh, you know, even practical things which seem to have nothing to do with AA, the basic notion of I have a problem, there is a solution out there. Find someone that has what you want, which is they have a solution to your problem. Ask them what to do. And when they tell you, don't argue with them, just do it. And I've had that with lawyers and I've had that with dentists and I've had that with various situations. Uh, learning how to be sponsored is super helpful in learning how to be helped by other agencies. Anyway, I have since, oh, it's a raised hand, how exciting. Alistair. Hi, Tim. Uh, just a quick question, really. I mean, uh, it says here quite as important was the discovery that spiritual principles will solve all of my problems, which is an yeah. important line. Um, but yet two pages earlier, he doesn't seem to have, he's a well-balanced individual, is that what they describe him as? So he doesn't seem to have too many other problems. Uh, yeah, we'll come to that. It's very interesting. Yes, that, that's very well spotted. Um, I've since been brought into a way of living infinitely more satisfying and I hope more useful than the life I lived before. There's a roomy poem where it's a conversation between a baby, something like a baby that's been born and a fetus. And the baby is saying, there's this marvelous world out here. There are trees and mackerel and avocado and parents and schools and lots of things to do and mandolins. And, and the fetus says, you're delusional. There is everything is all warm and cozy in here. There is nothing out there. You're completely mad. Um, so from the point of view of the fetus, the fetus are absolutely right that their little world is perfect but it is a far cry from life. It's a long way from being a full life. And I think that's the difference between the, th the three, when Bill talks about the three dimensions and the fourth dimension, the fourth dimension is the transcendence of the material. So uh, you can be doing super well on the material, um, but simply be unaware that there is more available in life. And, um, what is so fascinating here, my old manner of life was by no means a bad one, but I would not exchange its best moments for the worst I have now. I would not go back to it even if I could. So it suggests that there was a degree of dissatisfaction of which he was not even aware at the time. So the alcoholism, you know, I said sort of glibly, why was he drinking? Because he was an alcoholic. Um, why do alcoholics drink? Because they're alcoholic. That is true. What is an alcoholic? An alcoholic has got an itch that cannot be scratched in the material world. Now, if you don't know the itch is there, all you'll know is you're scratching something. But you won't know what you're scratching. I think that's the situation with Fred. He didn't even know something was wrong. 
And I think this has been my experience as well. To, to the, the first 10 years of being an AA, uh, did through a lot of success my way. Um, but it didn't work. But I was super aware that it wasn't working. But it looked good on the outside to some extent. Um, so there's something qualitatively different. There's an extra dimension, which once it's there, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be without. Um, and I didn't discover that extra dimension until I was years sober, at least not in full flood. Um, Fred's story speaks for itself. We hope it strikes home to thousands like him. He had felt only the first nip of the ringer. Most alcoholics have to be pretty badly mangled before they really commence to solve their problems. Many doctors and psychiatrists agree with our conclusions. One of these men, staff member of a world-renowned hospital, recently made this statement to some of us. Uh, what you have said about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight. And by the way, this story is, I, I think in that Scharberg history of the writing of the big book, this is properly attested. What you say about the general hopelessness of the average alcoholic's plight is in my opinion, correct. As to two of you men whose stories I've heard, there is no doubt in my mind that you are 100% hopeless. Now the doctor is saying they're 100% hopeless. Have you noticed that when they quote other people about AA, they use absolute language, whereas they themselves moderate it. Rarely have we seen a person fail, blah, blah, blah. You are probably alcoholic, but they let others be absolute for them. It's a very clever, it's very clever writing. 100% hopeless apart from divine help. Had you offered yourself as patients at this hospital, I would not have taken you if I'd been able to avoid it. People like you are too heartbreaking. Though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the most for the spiritual approach in cases such as yours. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. I've got a little thing that I want to read out. Let's see if I can find it. Right. So there's there's an, a very interesting uh, quotation I found. Let me just. get the screens resized. Actually, I'm just gonna stop sharing that one for a minute. Um, there you all are. Um, now I read this quotation, I think I may have read it another week, I'm not sure, but, but, but it's from a book by Daniel Kahneman. Um, uh, and he quotes a, a lecturer he had in psychoanalysis or psychotherapy. And the reason it's so interesting is because it, it very much mirrors a pattern that we get in AA. And I've been on this pattern I'm going to describe. I've been on both sides of the path. So I'm speaking, I'm quoting this against myself as much as anything. So this is the psych, this is the psychotherapist talking, this august, very experienced Israeli psychotherapist. You will from time to time meet a patient who shares a disturbing tale of multiple mistakes in his previous treatment. He has been seen by several cl clinicians, brackets, sponsors, and all failed him. 
the patient can lucidly describe how his therapists misunderstood him, but he is quickly perceived that you are different. You share the same feeling, are convinced that you understand him and will be able to help. At this point, my teacher raised his voice as he said, do not even think of taking on this patient. Throw him out of the office. He is most likely a psychopath and you will not be able to see him. You will not be able to help. Now, the reason that's so interesting is, you see, I was like that with psychotherapists when I was drinking and in my early recovery. And I was like that with sponsors for a while as well. I would hop from guru to guru. Um, what I perceived as guru to guru until I found the brick walls of um, Doug, Maureen and Sue um, who were implacable. Now, what's interesting, uh, you see the doctor on page 43 of the book, I'll reshare that. The doctor is saying a similar thing is you can't help these people. Um, so don't even try. Now, one has to be careful with people in AA, uh, particularly if of that pattern. It can be, it, it's a sign, there is a sign of trouble. If someone comes to you that story, it's a sign of trouble. But amazingly, people, even people in that category can be helped. And I've had people who are in that category, but with very, very boundary sponsorship and very clear direction, a really business-like approach and um, solid daily work, even people in that category get well. And that's the extraordinary thing about AA. It does seem to work with cases that nothing else worked for, as, as was the case with me. Once more, the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases, neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. And uh, remarkably, we seem to be two minutes to eight. So Alistair, I'm gonna stop there if I may. Thanks, Tim. Uh, that does seem an appropriate place to stop. Um, uh, I will just drop into the, uh, into the chat for everyone. Uh, this meeting was recorded and there is a link there that sh uh, where you can pick up recordings of previous meetings. Tonight's meeting will uh, hopefully appear in the coming days. Um, and with that, I'll hand it back to you, Tim, um, to close with the, uh, in the usual way. Please don't Thank me. you. Would you please help me close uh, with the serenity prayer using the, God, the word God as you understand it? God. Grant me the serenity. To accept things I can't change. The courage to change things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Tim. See you next week, everyone. Bye bye. Thank you, Tim.